This morning's New Testament reading comes from John chapter 11, verses 1 through 7, and verses 17 through 44. A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother, Lazarus, was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God, so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people who had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live, even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she told him. I have always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. Then she returned to Mary. She called Mary aside from the mourners and told her, The teacher is here and wants to see you. So Mary immediately went to him. Jesus had stayed outside the village at the place where Martha met him. When the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave so hastily, they assumed she was going to Lazarus' grave to weep, so they followed her there. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? He asked them. They told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, See how much he loved him? But some said, This man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb, a cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he has been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. Jesus responded, Didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me. But I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they will believe you sent me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go.
After a long pause, we're back this morning in John's Gospel. I think the last time we were in John's Gospel was back in May, and some of you may have um, joined us since then, and so you haven't heard the beginning. And I'm not going to go back and recap everything, obviously, we've seen in John's Gospel. But if you're familiar with it at all, you know that it's different than the rest of the Gospels, that John sort of follows a different pattern. And John calls himself even the disciple that Jesus loved. And at first that might sound a little arrogant, um, but I think that what John's trying to communicate to us is that John knew it. He knew that, that, that Jesus actually loved him. And he wants to tell you about it. In fact, he tells us this is why he wrote the book, so that you might also come along with him and see that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that in believing that you might have life in his name. And believing is not something that we just do one time. And it's not something that we we did when we were younger, or we walked an aisle, or we signed a pledge card, that believing is something that we have to do every day. To believe that Jesus is actually the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and to actually find our life hidden in his life um, is not an easy thing for us. And so John is a really good guide for us. And it's fun to look at the life of Jesus through the eyes of John because when we see Jesus, we see the exact imprint of the character and the nature of God. So remember that this morning as we think about this passage that we could spend a year in if we wanted to. Um, But let's pause for a minute and let's ask um, God to help us and to show us his son Jesus. Father, um, we need eyes so that we might see. We we need ears so that we might hear. Um, What we really need is for our hearts to be really ripped open and for for all that is there um, to be spilled out so that we might be filled again with the love of Jesus, that we might see what it means that he has the power, as we've already sung many times this morning, the power over death and hell, that the one who has the power over death and hell is the one who has also come near to us and who invites us in and who washes us with his blood and who brings us into his family. So, Father, would you connect those dots again for us this morning through your word and through your spirit? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The writer James Baldwin once said, The Lord never seems to get there when you want him. But when he arrives, he's always right on time. The Lord never seems to get there when you want him. And that's a, that's a statement that I think a lot of us would probably nod if we were a little more brave this morning in agreement to. And we would say, the Lord never seems to get there quite when I want him to get there. And you thought it maybe this week. You maybe didn't utter it out loud, but you thought in your mind maybe, how long, oh Lord? How long? How long am I going to battle with this thing that I've been battling with for years? How long am I going to watch... Um, my friends maybe fall into sickness or um, into, into addiction or into, into death. How long? How long am I going to open up the paper or turn on the news in the morning and look around and see just, oh, 
tragedy and devastation and heartache all around me. And inside we want to say, what, what are you waiting for? And I think the one thing that all of us could agree here this morning, whether we would call ourselves a Christian or not, is that we don't know the mind of God. We don't know the mind of God. We certainly don't understand God's timing. And oftentimes, if we're honest, we would say, I don't like some of his timing. We don't know why illness strikes when illness strikes. We certainly don't know why death comes when death does. We long to be able to kind of look around the corner and know what's going to come next in my life, in my family's life, in our country's life. Whatever it is, we want to know what's coming next. And the problem is, we don't. Some of you know, but I think probably most of you don't know, the reason that I I first moved to, to Greenville a little over 10 years ago was I was coming to take the position of a man who was a campus minister at Furman University. His name was Dustin Salter. And Dustin had only been on campus, I think, for a few months. And he was, one day, he was out after a small group and went riding his bike in the neighborhood with his two boys and... um, Nobody knows exactly what happened, but he went over his handlebars and hit his head. And that injury resulted in his death a few months later. (coughs) And when I arrived that fall on campus, kind of all green and ready to tell people about Jesus and wanting to do a good job and not let anybody down, what I was met with were faces that were hurt and were angry and were tired, and were questioning, and wanted to know why. Like, why did this happen? Why him? Why now? He had a wife and three kids. He was preaching the gospel. He had kind of just gotten here. We were starting to connect with him. Why why would God do this? And in the face of death, in the face of our vulnerability, we want to have answers. But the truth is, we don't know the answers to those questions. We're not given them. And it's interesting in this passage that this passage that Aaron read to us this morning comes right after Jesus' proclamation that he's the good shepherd. You remember that? That he's the good shepherd, that he knows his sheep, that he calls them by name. And you open up this next chapter and you begin reading and you kind of go, I don't think the people in this passage feel like Jesus is a very good shepherd right now. I want him to show up, but he's not here. And you look around and did you notice everyone in this passage is utterly confused. I mean, it's chaos at the beginning. I had to cut some verses out just for the sake of time. Go back and read the whole chapter today, but... Nobody knows what is going on. The disciples don't know what Jesus is talking about. And they're, you know, Jesus is saying, this isn't a sickness that leads to death. In another translation, it says that um, Lazarus has just fallen asleep. And so the disciples are like, well, why would we go there then? Judea is the place where people want to kill us. Let's not go back to the place where people want to kill us. Or they're thinking, I mean, if this is just a sickness, Jesus has healed from a distance before. Why don't you just heal from a distance? Why don't you do what you've already done before? 
<coughs> and then he finally gets there, <clears throat> and when he does, he meet, he's met with the same kind of confusion. <clears throat> Martha comes out. Excuse me, I have got a, something in my throat. <coughs> Let's get past this. <clears throat> Let's just embrace the awkwardness for a minute. <clears throat> this happened to me once when I was praying at downtown Perez, and I think everyone thought I was bawling, <laughs> and I didn't have any water. And people were like, he's really moved by this prayer. And I just couldn't, I actually couldn't catch my breath. I couldn't talk. Um, <clears throat> so if I, I may cry later, but um, right now I'm just choking. So Jesus, where, where were we? Um, Jesus gets to Bethany, and when he gets there, I mean, Mary and Martha are there, and they just don't, they, you know, Jesus starts to talk to her about Lazarus, rise it again. She's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what I want to know is where were you? Why weren't you here? Why didn't you come sooner? What she's asking is, are you indifferent to this? Do you actually care? Do you actually love us? And everyone's running around and they're confused and they don't know what's going on and they can't make sense of this situation because their, their friend and their brother, Lazarus, is dead. He's gone. They are not fools. They just don't know why. They don't know why. If ever in life we face like true fear and true confusion, then it's surely at the face of death. We don't even like to talk about it, right? Not this morning. We don't really want to talk about death. We would rather avoid the topic altogether, but I think of the church, we need to talk about it. We need to talk about it more. We ask those questions that were asked in this passage, that were asked by my students, why now, why this person, why in this way, and all of those are perfectly legitimate questions that we all should ask, and let me say this, we all probably will ask at some point in this life. We probably will if we haven't already. And the truth is, we're rarely given crystal clear answers to those types of questions. We're rarely given crystal clear answers of why now, why this person, why in this way, why has death death come in this way. Instead, what we're given in this passage is we're sort of given a peek behind the curtain. And I think that that's what's so amazing about this passage. I think that this is what is so fascinating about it. I think this is actually why it's helpful because what we get is not answers to every particular question that you and I have about a particular situation in our life. Instead, what we have is a picture of Jesus's response to death itself. And what I want for us this morning more than anything, and what I want for myself more than anything, is to see Jesus' response and to just latch on to it. To cling on to it. And so let's think about it this morning. Let's, let's look. Let's look at Jesus' response. I've got five responses from Jesus this morning. I'll try to go fast. 
The first one is this. Jesus responds with love. He responds with love. You know, all the other Gospels, most of them don't talk about Jesus actually loving. Other, they don't actually use the word. They usually use the word compassion. But John uses this word over and over again. And you hear it in this passage over and over again that Jesus loved Martha and he loved Mary and he loved Lazarus. And we just want to read over that and not really think much about it. Jesus loved these people. He loved them. And typically when we're in the midst of a situation that's really agonizing or really difficult or really tragic and all of us have experienced and will experience those things in our life, typically our first reaction is to this is to go, does he actually love us? You can ask that question, by the way. You can ask that question to God. The Psalms ask it. It's good to ask. But that's the question that, that, that gets in our head. Why, if he did, why would he let this happen? Why would he let this happen? Does he actually love us? But you see in this passage, you see that Jesus loves these people. And you see that the devastating nature of their situation does not negate the deep love of Jesus for his people. The devastating nature of their situation does not negate the deep love that he has for them. You've got to hold those things together because that's where we find ourselves a lot. And even the people that are standing nearby, when Jesus, a little further in the passage, they see Jesus and they look at him and it's like they're in awe. They're like, see how he loved him? Look at that. But secondly, we see the response of Jesus is not just love, but the response is anger. And honestly, this is something that I hadn't really thought about a whole lot before, but whenever there is deep love, and you know this in your own life, when you have deep love for somebody, it is often accompanied by deep anger, especially when that one that you deeply love is in danger of being hurt. In fact, it's a good response, and it's a natural response, that one that you love so much is in danger, then what rises up in you is anger. Listen again to the verse. When Jesus saw Mary weeping, just, just picture for a second, Jesus walking back in to this situation, and he looks, and he sees Mary weeping, and he saw the other people around her wailing. A deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled, or he groaned in his spirit. When Jesus saw Mary Weeping, and he saw everyone else around her wailing. You're like, what's he, how's he going to respond? His response was anger. Who is he angry at? He's angry at death. He's angry at death. Jesus is angry at death. He hates death. And when he sees what it does to his people and he sees them wailing, he is so moved because he loves them so much that inside of him wells up this deep groaning and he is angry at death. Listen to what B.B. Warfield says about this. He says, what John tells us is that Jesus approached the grave of Lazarus in a state not of uncontrollable grief, but of irrepressible anger. The spectacle of the distress of Mary 
and her companions enraged Jesus because it brought poignantly home to his consciousness the evil of death, its unnaturalness, its violent tyranny, as Calvin phrases it. In Mary's grief, he contemplates the general misery of the entire human race and burns with rage against the oppressor of men. I love that. You have to understand that Jesus hates death more than you and I ever could. And he hates death because he loves you. And in this moment, what you see is a microcosm of what Jesus sees and experiences all the time is that he contemplates the general misery of the whole human race that we brought sin into his perfect, harmonious, good creation. And the result of sin is death. And I think Jesus standing there in the midst of his people cares about that. And the fact that the word became flesh and that light came into the darkness, as John tells us about, this moment is poignant, right? This moment is that Jesus is facing his enemy. But his anger is mixed, thirdly, with tears. It's, it's so, I mean, it's so strange to look at this passage because the one who one day is going to wipe every tear from your eye. The one who keeps all of your tears in a bottle stands in the midst of his creation and weeps. And surely this has got to be one of the most amazing instances in the life of Jesus that we have recorded that Jesus actually enters into the grieving of his people. He goes to them in the midst of this. He, he didn't have to. He could have healed Lazarus from a distance. He could have raised Lazarus from the dead from a distance. But instead, he goes there, and he doesn't have to go to the tomb, but he marches up to the tomb, and he tells them to roll away the stone, and he, he breathes in the stench of four-day-old death. It enters the nostrils of the second person of the Trinity who has now taken on flesh and he smells it and he hears the wailing and he hears the weeping around him and he begins to weep with them. He hates it. It tears him apart. Jesus who knows that Lazarus is going to rise again still weeps. And the presence, what does that mean? That means the presence of your pain is not proof that Jesus is indifferent to your pain. The presence of your pain is not proof that Jesus is indifferent to your pain. No, 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 it's not. The second person of the Trinity, he stands there upon the earth into the creation that he has spoken to being, and he weeps with the very ones who brought death into his creation. How do you wrap your mind around that? Have you ever tried to? He hates our sin and he hates our rebellion yet and he weeps with you over the ways that it hurts you. There is no other God like that. There is no other God like that. Love, anger, tears, but fourthly he responds with power that Martha when he gets there is so distraught, and rightfully so, and she's even a little, I would say, angry, frustrated, at least irritated at Jesus, and she's saddened 
by the fact that his um, delay in coming kind of feels like indifference to her pain. And Jesus stops her and he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. This is what it means. You say I'm the Messiah. This is what it means. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That is why I'm here. I am the resurrection and the life. And Jesus is saying, I've come to kill death. I've come to obliterate your worst enemy. I've come to swallow it up forever. I've come to remove its sting so that you who are united with me here in this life will not truly die. That's elementary to Christianity, right? With that, there is no Christianity. But we have to ask ourselves this morning again, do you know that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that if you're united with Christ, that you will not truly die? That the sting of death has been removed? That you are connected to the one who is the resurrection and the life. In fact, the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is now alive in you. And Jesus, almost to enact a a living parable, he tells her this. I'm the resurrection of the life. And then he's like, let me show you. Right? Come here, I want to show you what I mean. And he shows Mary and Martha and those around him what he means by marching to the tomb, telling them to move the stone. And Jesus, in this beautiful foreshadowing of what's soon going to come in his own life, he stands at the mouth of the tomb and Jesus shouts at death. And death listens to Jesus. He shouts at death and death ceases, it reverses. That the good shepherd, who we just heard about in the passage before, stands at the mouth of the tomb and he calls his sheep by name. Lazarus, come out. Can you imagine? And Lazarus comes stumbling out of a tomb, having been dead for four days, wrapped from head to toe in linen cloths. And Jesus says, unbind him and let him go, as if to say, death has no more dominion over you because you are connected to me. And don't you see, I'm showing you, I have power over death. I have come to conquer death. This is why I came and Jesus shows them. And I love that he even invites um, those around him to come and unbind Lazarus. As, as if to say, I'm going to raise him from the dead, but you've got a job too. Come unwrap him. It's sort of like when he raises this girl from the dead, and then he says, get her some breakfast. Come along with me. You're part of this now. He has power, but fifthly, he responds with purpose. With love, with anger, with tears, with power with purpose. He's so deliberate in what he does. I mean, if you think back to John, as we've been looking through it over this past year, everything that Jesus does is deliberate. There is nothing that Jesus does that is not deliberate. Jesus marches into Samaria and sits at the edge of a well in the middle of the day because he wants to meet with a woman who he knows is going to be there. That's pretty deliberate. 
Jesus goes to the pool of Siloam, and he, and he goes and he picks out one man who's been paralyzed for 38 years, and he tells him to pick up his mat. That's deliberate. And in this instance, Jesus is very deliberate. He waits two more days. He draws a crowd. He prays to his father for the sake of those standing around them. And what does he pray? He prays that they would see this and that they would believe. And Jesus uses even the bitter, painful evil of death in order to bring about good. Even the death of his friend. That he had a purpose that none of them knew about and none of them understood. And you see, it's not many days Jesus is going to truly die the death that Lazarus deserves. And he himself will rise again so that death will be no more. And in this instance, he uses this death of Lazarus to show those he loves what is actually coming. To show them that they never actually have to fear death again. Because they are loved by the one who has swallowed up death forever. Warfield goes on to say, the, ra- the raising of Lazarus thus becomes not an isolated marvel. That wasn't the point. It's not an isolated marvel. It's a decisive instant and open symbol of Jesus' conquest of death and hell. That's what it is. He's showing them. Don't just ooh and awe that I raised a man from the dead. Ooh and awe that I've come to conquer death and hell forever for you because I love you. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, right? We don't know what's going to happen this afternoon. We don't know what's happening in the next few minutes. We cannot know. We don't know when and where and how um, we will pass from this earth. That's a fact. And we have to think about that. It's a mystery to us. It's going to remain a mystery to us. But what we know is that Jesus has a purpose even in our own death. Even the timing of them is up to him. And more than that, we know that our death in this life is not a true death, but it's a passing over into life. And listen to me, if your life is hidden in Christ, then not even death has power over you anymore. Not even death can truly harm you. And Paul got this when Paul said, for me to live is Christ, but for me to die is gain. And he says, my desire is to depart and to be with Christ because that is far better. I wish I thought that way more. I wish we all did. And I want to ask you this morning, maybe this is the question we can close with, what do we do with that, right? What do we do with this? If you're here this morning and you're you're claiming Christianity, and this is the faith that you believe in, then what do we do with that? I I want you to think for a minute. I want you to imagine something with me. Imagine I walked in this morning and I told you, I have some very good news. And the good news is this, that it's going to change everything about the way you currently view your life. It's going to change the way in which you love and approach the people around you. It's going to change the way that you use your gifts. It's going to have influence over what you decide to sort of do with your life and your career. It's going to change all of those things. If you can accept and believe this news, it's going to start to wear away at that nagging fear that stagnates your existence 
It's going to make the things that you worry about seem really small in comparison. And it's going to allow you to live with more freedom and peace than you thought possible. You go, tell me that news. I want that news. And imagine the pronouncement was this, is that you are invincible. Nothing can actually take away your life. That the thing that's the biggest threat to you, the thing that deep down you fear more than anything else, has already been taken care of. It has already been been destroyed. This is exactly the pronouncement that Jesus is giving to us this morning, that he's giving to us today. And some of us know it, but it just lies dormant in us. It lies dormant in us in the sense that it doesn't change necessarily much about the way that we view life. Jesus rose from the dead and conquered death. And what scripture says is that you are in Christ. You rose with him. And you are now a new creation. And that death's sting has been removed and you will live forevermore with him. That is what we believe. The Lord might not always show up right when we want, right? But he has already showed up. And the way that he has showed up changes everything. It changes everything. And he is coming again. And when he comes again, we are going to see him face to face. A couple days ago was the 54th anniversary of the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. And on that day, a a small group of of white supremacists enacted... um, a horrific act of terrorism. They, they put a bomb in a church, in this church. And there was four little girls who were coming out of their Sunday school class, and that bomb went off at, at 1022 on Sunday morning and took their life. Addie Mae Collins, Cynthia Wesley, Carol Robertson, Carol Denise McNair. And the next day, Martin Luther King Jr., I don't know how he did it, but he delivered a eulogy for those girls. And I want to leave you just with a few words that he said in the wake of that horrific and tragic accident. I hope you can find some consolation from Christianity's affirmation that death is not the end. Death is not a period that ends the great sentence of life, but a comma that punctuates it more, it's more lo- to more lofty significance. Death is not a blind alley that leads the human race into a state of nothingness, but an open door which leads man into eternal life. Let this daring faith, this great invincible surmise, be your sustaining power during these trying days. Now I say to you in conclusion, life is hard. At times as hard as crucible steel. It has its bleak and difficult moments, like the ever-flowing waters of life. Life has its moments of drought and moments of flood, like the ever-changing cycle of seasons. Life has the soothing warmth of its summers and the piercing chill of its winters. And if one will hold on, he will discover that God walks with him and that God is able to lift you from the fatigue of despair to the buoyancy of hope and transform dark and desolate valleys into sunlit paths 
of peace. Let me pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he didn't count equality with you a thing to be grasped, but that he entered into the humiliating situation of taking on flesh and walking and dwelling among us and standing at the tomb of his friend so that he might conquer death. Father, we thank you for the love of Jesus. We thank you for the love of Jesus for people like us, not good people. We're not. People who don't deserve it. Father, we thank you that you have come to show people like us mercy. We thank you this table pronounces it, echoes it, screams it to us. Father, would you allow us to hear it once again this morning as we come to it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.